This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 26, with guest Alina Bassi. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Sovorova, and welcome to today's episode. Less is more, dear listeners. You don't need too many new outfits and follow every single trend out there. This is the motto of my guest, Alina Bassi, a chemical engineer who turned entrepreneur with a passion for sustainability. With seven years of experience designing and building factories that turn waste into energy and biofuels, she decided to start her own venture, Clyderly, to tackle the issue of the textile waste. It's time that we roll up our sleeves and help Alina on her mission to lower the carbon footprint and save tons of CO2 emissions. How? Hear today's conversation. Don't want to miss out on the next episode release? Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Alina, warm welcome to the studio. So great to meet you in person and kickstart the conversation on your unique journey and textile waste. Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to be here. This is such a, you know, cool setup. (laughs) Well, it's only getting better. (laughs) Alina, can you share with me why one day you decided to start studying chemical engineering? And let's face it, it's not a very common path for a young woman. Yeah, it's a a weird one, actually. I think... um, I was always really good at maths and science and it was something that always really interested me, but I really didn't know when I was young what I wanted to do. And um, actually it was my mum who really helped me and supported me. She helped to read through university prospectuses and we looked through all of the degrees together. And I guess no one knows you better than your parents. So she pointed out that, you know, I'm, I'm particularly good at problem solving. And that I should go into something like engineering because it uses those skills and my and the subjects I was interested in, like math and science. So I was looking into engineering and it was actually chemical engineering that really stood out to me because I wanted to work in sustainability and I was really passionate about sustainability. And so I thought, if I become a chemical engineer, then I can work in renewable energy, solar power or wind power. So that was my plan. Wow, you knew it like from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, from uh, from really early on. It was actually, um, I think when I first read about climate change, uh, that's when I knew I wanted to work in sustainability. So it was really a kind of a, a decision from a very young age. And I know that today you're also advocating and inspiring students to take on like studying in STEM. Why is it so important for you? I think STEM subjects really are the subjects that enable you to create real innovation and real change um, and the ability to problem solve. I mean, yes, my course relied on me understanding certain amounts of physics, chemistry and maths. But actually, the main skill I learned was how do you look at a problem from a very different way, from a bird's eye view and really think about different ways to solve it, which is Weirdly enough, what I ended up doing with Clydely, but it's a great life skill. And I think that it's the beginning of innovation, like studying STEM subjects is actually what leads to such great change in the future. And unfortunately, not enough women do this. I mean, I think even now in the degree, in the chemical engineering degree, only 20% of women study it, um, which is a real shame because we need people from all different backgrounds to create change. So I really hope that many younger women see themselves as they could, you know, potentially also study engineering. And it's not a degree just for young men. 
Absolutely. And then you can do amazing things like building a factory, which I'm I'm going to ask you about a little bit later, because I'm curious how you build a factory. (laughs) Easy as that. Probably not. And also another thing, you know, what I was curious to ask you is how you started to work in waste management. And in essence, what is really waste management when we talk about it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think to maybe get into the story of how I got into waste, probably I'll go a few steps back. So when I started my career, even though I knew I wanted to start in sustainability, unfortunately, I had to start in the first job I received, which was in the oil and gas sector, which is not ideal. But I think when you're twen- early 20s, you take what you can get. <laughs> so I did. But eventually I ended up moving to an organization that was working on waste. And they are a consultancy looking at household waste to energy and tire waste to oil. And so that was my first exposure to waste. And um, I thought it was so exciting to be able to go and see sites where all of our waste ends up. And it's not something that the everyday person gets to see, but I realized how important it is that we do see that. So that was the way I got into waste management. And my experience of it was actually pretty grim. I remember the first time I went onto a waste site and um, you you go there with, you know, your hard hat and your safety boots and your goggles and your high-vis jacket. And I just remember all these flies just like standing on my high-vis jacket because it was attracting them. And that was my first experience at a waste site. And I thought, oh God, this is not nice. I can't believe all of the stuff that we throw away ends here. And it's pretty obvious, but I guess you just don't think about it on a day-to-day basis. Back to waste management. So how does this process look like then? Different for every single waste feedstock, of course, maybe to stick to household waste. Usually what tends to happen is collected by different waste management companies and then sent to different collection sites where then they sort it. Um, It can be sorted, you know, as you usually do into cardboard or paper or glass or whatever. And sometimes um, people are handpicking through our waste, which is really horrible to see. And yeah, after that, it's then sent to other places where it might be processed further, depending on what it is. But waste management as a whole is a very complex topic. Um, One of the companies I ended up working for for many years was coffee waste plant. And um, we were looking at collecting thousands of kilos of coffee and then processing that per hour. And again, it's another waste stream that you didn't think about. And there's more than enough of it, enough to fill an entire airplane hangar all the way up to the top. (laughs) And I also know that you have been planning and building factories. So (laughs) this question is like, how did you do that? So that's what process engineering is or chemical engineering. It's mm-hmm. to learn, you learn how to build processes at scale. So you learn how to put together a plant that will process anything from waste to oil and gas, to water, to building medication, pharmaceuticals at scale, makeup, uh, any cosmetic products, anything that requires being built at scale is what you learn in chemical engineering. So I learned it obviously during my degree and then applied it for many years during different uh, jobs and eventually ended up working on site directly at the coffee waste plant I mentioned. And that was so exciting because I'd never, I'd designed a lot before, but not physically gone and seen those changes happen straight away. But because the company I was working and was a startup that was well-funded, 
everything you were doing was being enacted straight away and you were seeing it happening right in front of you. And I was the one having to go and find the pieces of equipment that we would buy, which was really exciting and such a great experience. That sounds amazing. It's like almost building like a spaceship. It's like, like I, I see it as adult Lego. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. You know, that's why your mom said you're going to study chemical engineering. Yeah, you like I, Lego. I loved Lego. I absolutely loved Lego. You so. see, that's the first sign. Yeah. That's the first sign. So living in London and then you decided, okay, now I'm going to move to Berlin to found your own startup, Clyderly. And before we speak about Clyderly, I would like to understand why you decided for Berlin, which is not a typical manufacturing and industry heavy city. Berlin was really not a career choice, actually. It was more a, a personal move. Uh, my husband's German. We wanted to move to Europe before Brexit officially happened. And we came to Berlin for a weekend to visit some friends and absolutely fell in love with it. We just thought it was such a great city. And coming from London, which is also a startup hub in Europe, it made sense, given that we were both working in startups, that we moved to the next startup hub in Europe, which is Berlin. <laughs> nice. And at the beginning, you actually didn't know that many people, right? You didn't have the network. So how did you start building it up? Oh, it was tough. <laughs> it was really tough. I mean, I had friends, obviously, but not not many. And given that, you know, you come to a country where you don't know the language, it can be really tough. I think it was actually great to start Clyderly here because you, I was already so far out of my comfort zone from moving to from London to here that that additional step, pushing myself even further out of my comfort zone, didn't feel like such a big hurdle. So uh, I started Clyderly um, by looking for local accelerators nearby that would support me with gaining that network, with meeting new people, founders, um, investors, lawyers all of the stakeholders that you need to build a company. And that was the, the beginning. And then, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was three years ago. Beginning of 2019. It's interesting, right? Three years ago, you came here, not so many people. You don't have the network. Today, we see posters of you at Factory <laughs> Berlin all over the place. And I was like, wait, that's Alina, you know? <laughs> so that was pretty quick. Like now you're like the superstar of Berlin. <laughs> that's very kind. So back to Clyderly, I'm curious to understand how can you make recycled plastic out of textile because I don't see this process right now. I cannot envision it. And I was also reading that you have managed to develop a method to extract plastic granules from blends of fabrics and to develop this recycled plastic. How can, did you come to an idea and also later formula to turn textile waste into recycled plastic? Maybe I'll start off with how I came up with the idea. So I've always been one to think of solutions. Again, I think it's a problem solving uh, mindset that I've had from a young age. And um, I was actually on holiday in Tanzania because my parents are born there. And I was visiting family in the end of 2018. Um, it all feels like a blur before Corona. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I was visiting family and I was low, like visiting some local markets there. And that was the first time I saw clothing waste. And I'd been to so many sites. I've seen waste from so many different places, but I hadn't seen clothing waste. And that was really when it got, oh, I started to think what was happening to it. And I started researching and then I couldn't stop reading. And everything I was reading was making me more and more depressed. And I think it was weird because it was at that point that I was thinking, maybe, maybe this is what I should do. I always knew I wanted to start a company, but I didn't know what 
it would be. And I know that I'm someone who's really driven by purpose. So I can't just start something for the sake of it. It really has to be some innate purpose that's going to push me. That's why I did chemical engineering because I wanted to work in sustainability. So when I when I thought saw textile, I, st- I realized that this, if I can solve this problem, this combines my passion for the industry, my understanding of waste, which is very different to most people's, and my problem solving ability. So it's kind of like what I assumed would be the perfect solution to starting a company. And so, yeah, I um, developed this process and it took a really long time research development. But I guess being able to, when you know how to build a coffee waste factory that recycles thousands of kilos an hour uh, to turn it into biofuels, then you can very quickly apply those same skills and do the same thing to coffee waste, uh, textile waste. Mm. So I started to realize that most of the clothing that we use, 87% of it ends up in a landfill or an incinerator, which means only 13% is getting recycled. And the problem with recycling is that a lot of the clothing is, if even if it is recycled, it's usually downcycled into cleaning cloths, insulation, carpets, or it might be recycled with fiber to fiber recycling, but that's not very easy to do with blends of fabrics. So I realized this specific niche. And if we could solve that problem and make it as easy as possible for any retailer or anyone along the fashion supply chain to recycle with us, then we're solving a very big problem very, very quickly. Um, And that's very, very difficult to do with fiber to fiber recycling, because what you get out is not of the same quality that maybe brands want to use again to to sell. So I thought, well, how about we just turn it into something completely different that doesn't uh, go back into clothing? And I, it's weird because I actually, <laughs> at the time, thought, imagine if you could wear your clothing in a pair of glasses. And that was just a really weird idea that came to me at that point. And I, it's so crazy to now think back that I actually managed to develop that. Um, but basically what we do is we recycle blends containing polyester, cotton, viscose and elastane, which are the four key fabrics that are used in fast fashion, but even in luxury goods. Um, and these fabrics, they could be blends of them or they could be all four of them. We go through a very complex process of breaking it down and also removing things that we can't recycle, like metals, like plastic buttons, etc. And then eventually, once we've broken it down, we then bind it together with natural additives, which act like more of a, a glue to make it stable, to make it stick together. And that glue sticks the clothes together, and it's then broken down into pellets. And those pellets act or behave similar to plastic, they don't behave exactly the same as a specific plastic. So it's very difficult to say, you know, it's a replacement to polystyrene or polypropylene, but it behaves very similarly to a lot of them. So the first test product that we did was a clothing hanger because I thought that's a very cool, very circular way to replace another plastic that's used a lot in clothing. After testing that, we tested other products and now we're at eyewear, <laughs> which is another very uh, circular product that we can use to um, create circularity within the fashion industry. This is incredible. Like from your clothing, you can make your sunglasses frame. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where can I sign up for that? And where do you right now produce everything? In Germany. Okay. So there is a certain facilities where you 
kind of we manufacture. We manufacture. And it's great because um, even as an engineer in the UK, I used to come to Germany for production and buy machinery. I would always do that because Germans are known for good engineering. So it's good good to be here. (laughs) So from a consumer side, so let's say I'm a consumer who wants to be more conscious about textiles I purchase. Therefore, I scrap off my list any garments that contain polyester, viscose, uh, which one? Elastane. Elastane and maybe other synthetic material. And I only buy clothing that is made of silk, organic cotton and wool. Right. So does that sound right? And what um, textiles are biodegradable? To be honest, it's a really difficult question to answer because I'm not entirely sure if biodegradable is the answer, to be honest. And it's just probably really controversial. But I like to think of circularity as opposed to allowing things to break down because if we were to always only buy something that was biodegradable, it means that we have to then put in more energy to making it again. But if we didn't, and we actually just reused something that was already going to go to waste, that's much more (laughs) environmentally friendly. If, and there's a quote that I really like, this is if the EU were to incorporate a truly circular economy, which means nothing is wasted and everything is being reused, by 2030, we could half CO2 emissions. And so that just shows the power of circularity and the power of reusing waste. So I find it difficult to say, you know, scrap using anything synthetic and just use cotton because cotton also requires harsh pesticides and a lot of water to grow. So why don't we think about using something that's recycled instead? So don't buy something that's new, buy something that's made out of something recycled. That fabric didn't go to waste initially. (laughs) That's a good one to note. And it's interesting, you know, if we look back 20, 30 years ago, I have a feeling I used to wear clothing that would um, have a longer lifespan. Like I could wear a t-shirt and it will not lose its shape or color for years. And, you know, today, like what has happened to the fashion industry that longevity of those clothing, those garments is just so short and it can last just a few months. Oh, so, so many things have happened. It's, it's really quite sad, to be honest. I mean, the, on the consumption side, I think we're just living a much more fast paced life and we expect that we want something new and we want instant gratification. So we'll buy something and then we get bored of it and we want something new and we always want to do something exciting. And whether that's going somewhere, or whether that's buying something new, it you know, produces the same hormones or gives you, you know, releases endorphins. At the same time, social media has really not helped. When you're scrolling on your phone, you're seeing people wearing different outfits every single day. And you think as an end consumer, you might think that's normal, but it's not. The the most shocking thing for me was when we were um, in lockdown and you still had influencers showcasing new garments every single day. And I thought, I mean, surely... At now, by now, this is the point where you don't do that because who is buying new clothes in lockdown? We're all at home wearing pajamas, probably. So um, it was uh, that just shows you, you know, the power of uh, them advertising products. And I think the third thing that has also happened is we we expect the turnaround so quickly, and there's new styles coming all the time. So we're not, you know, sticking to the autumn winter trend or the spring and summer trend. There's new trends every week or every month. Um, which is just not sustainable. 
So a lot of things have gone wrong in the fashion industry. Yeah, I'm curious, why do we have this controversy, right? On the one hand side, the efforts on sustainability has been very strong and loud voices are out there. On the other hand, influencers are promoting um, the consumption, new trends, as you said. How can a consumer reflect on their behavior and maybe be more resistant to this very attractive offers out there? It's tough. It's really tough. I know that when I was younger, I also thought that, you know, buying new clothing would probably make me happy. But I think actually it's so much more of a psychological thing. And actually we all need to maybe do some deep work and really look into why we keep buying. You know, what things are we trying to fulfill with it? Is it, you know, we're maybe unhappy with our body? Is that why we're trying to compensate for buying new clothing? Are we maybe unhappy with other aspects of our lives? And, you know, we're doing, we think retail therapy is going to help us. Um, it requires a lot more of looking inside you and really thinking why you're doing that. So how would you motivate um, brands and consumers to recycle and upcycle? And also, do you think if it's financially rewarded, it will be more proactive? Absolutely. I think um, right now the problem is just that brands don't necessarily have to. They're not necessarily having to pay large taxes for sending to landfill or to send to an incinerator or to just send it to a third world country. But as soon as that became a tax implication or that as soon as that became a fee that they were paying to the government, all of a sudden you'll see everyone change. Because really, unfortunately, it does usually come down to money. And if it's so too expensive for them, it's very difficult for them to explain why economically it makes more sense. So I think a lot needs to be done in terms of regulation um, and policy change to enable brands to enforce recycling. Are you also involved into that work? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm. Uh, there's a, a really amazing group from the US called Climate Change Makers who actually advocate for policy change. Um, and they're now starting their European chapter, which is uh, one, of, one of the things I'm doing here. So, and also as a consumer, what can I do to avoid textile waste? Maybe some of your like three main recommendations that I can do with my old clothing, for instance. The first thing I would say is try and see if you could repair it. So can you, if it's got a hole in it, maybe it's not a bad time to learn a life skill and learn how to sew. Um, maybe you can, you know, turn your longer t-shirt into a shorter sheet t-shirt. Maybe you can turn it into a um, sleeveless top and cut off the, the side. So you can always you know, be quite creative and do something new. If I wasn't going to do that, I usually give it to friends and family. And that's the benefit of having a sister, I guess. So I always get the chance to give it to someone else very close to me. And the third thing would be that if you're going to donate it, to really think about whether someone will wear it. Because now I've worked with so many charities and it's really sad to see people sorting through our rubbish and people thinking, oh, I'll donate it, but it actually is awful and no one really will wear it. So it's not fair on people working in charities to have to sort through our rubbish. Really think about if they want it and will they be able to give this to someone to wear. So I think I was reading also, usually this is the charities, but also the distribution centers where they distribute to the homeless people, it's usually men. Yeah. And the ones who are sending the clothing are women and they have 
to women clothing and children's clothing. So it's not that helpful then? No. Oh, no. (laughs) Unfortunately. And it's it's tough for them to have to go through so much. Uh, Like they said, such a large percentage of it cannot be donated. I wish there was some kind of like information, you know, site where you can just like check on what should you donate and not, you know, rather than. Yeah, maybe we should do that. Sounds like a yeah, plan, maybe, right? Maybe we should. I mean, we work with like so a many little of these like charities. cheat sheet, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we work so closely with them anyway. So maybe it's a good idea that actually we should share that information. We do try to do as much as possible for our online magazine, but I think that that's a very good point. <laughs> So we spoke a little bit about the textile waste situation worldwide, and it's very dire. Are there any countries that you would say have been really championing the textile recycling, upcycling, has been from the regulatory perspective looking at changing the situation, as you said, applying certain taxes? Unfortunately not, to be honest, at this point in time. Um, I think the problem is that you may see that large volumes are recycled or donated but actually what's happening it's donated to say like I said uh, countries such as Tanzania uh, but they don't need such large volumes (laughs) they don't need to have uh, billions of garments sent their way so we always maybe feel like as developed countries we're doing a good thing by donating it but they don't necessarily need all that much so unfortunately at this point in time i think the situation is really bad and i'm not sure how quickly it will improve given that we're going to double the clothing production by the year 2050. so imagine right now you have all the resources all the capabilities you have wished for how would you fight the this problem at scale i'd build my own factory (laughs) (laughs) one or a few (laughs) one in every city i mean i think that the beauty of the solution to this problem in particular that we've we've come up with is that every country has clothing waste and needs plastics. So it's solving two problems, not one. And you could essentially do the same thing across the world. Would you partner with anyone specific? Like how would you see this process really happening at scale? So far, there's definitely innovation coming within textile recycling. Um, maybe not exactly what we're doing. But, you know, a lot of textile to textile recycling happening at the moment. And there's definitely ways that we could partner with other companies in other countries to license this to them. And there's definitely a lot of exciting discussions happening. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. And maybe what recycled products would you like to produce also in the future? Because I know you have like a lot of ideas where to to put this into place. And now you have the sunglasses launched not so long ago. If there will be next products, what would it be? And also interesting, sorry to interrupt, but interesting that we speak of products. It's not just you actually want to produce something out of this recycled plastic. I think that's also a different approach here. To be honest, I think when I first started, I remember trying to talk about the the solution I had and people not really understanding it. And the power of actually not just saying what you're doing, but really showing it for people to very quickly in an instant understand what that is, is so much more powerful. (laughs) Ever since we launched our eyewear collection online, it's it's as if it's kind of unlocked people's imagination as to what you can make. Um, And that that old t-shirt doesn't have to be downcycled into a cleaning cloth. It can be upcycled into something of much higher value. There's so many different products that we want to produce. But I just had this one amazing thought would be to one day go into a 
clothing store, for example, or a retail outlet where the entire interior was made from our material. I mean, how cool would that be? That's amazing. <laughs> so you mean like all the door frames um, or all the tiles or perhaps the um, these panels kind of like you have here? Ah, I see. Wow. And it's possible. Technically, yes. <laughs> We have to see. Well, Alina, I, so far, I, from what I can hear, if you have an idea, it's going to come to fruition. So I don't doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, what I wanted to ask, because you're founder of your own company, but you also do so many things parallel to that. Just amazed how much time uh, you have for everything. This is very inspiring. And you are actively supporting other founders, especially women, to get funded. And you are one of the mentors at Stealth Mode at Factory Berlin and also lead the nonprofit initiative Founderland. Why is this work so important for you? And could you tell me more about those two initiatives? Sure. Um, I think it always comes down to the same theme. I really am driven by purpose. So for sure, up until now, my main life purpose has been I was going to work in sustainability and I was going to do something in that realm. But moving to Germany was definitely very interesting. I learned so much about how diversity is seen in Europe. And I did many accelerator programs and noticed that there was always diversity spoken about in Germany is usually spoken about in the lens of gender, but never in terms of ethnic background. Um, and I wasn't the only one to notice that. Uh, Deborah, my co-founder at Founderland, also realized the same thing. And we both did the Google for Startups Female Founder Program together. And I know you had Erin Hunt here, and she's absolutely incredible. We met through that program, and we enjoyed it so much because we learned so much, and we got the chance to meet this fantastic group of women. And that was so powerful, and it gave me so much strength that we realized if you could do the same thing for women of color founders, what kind of power could that create? What kind of community could that be? And we initially actually just looked to join a community like that, to be honest, um, but we couldn't find anything in Europe. So then we decided to build it. <laughs> and what is the current state? Is there new members that can join? Is there a way that you're already supporting uh, the founders or where are you at? Yeah. Um, so we started off as a really basic matchmaking platform, just matchmaking women of color entrepreneurs with investors. Initially kind of bridging that gap where you get the warm introductions, because that's the hardest bit to fundraising is if you contact a VC on their website, it's very difficult for them and you, you definitely won't get a response, most likely. Um, so we've tried to bridge that gap. And now uh, we're building our community. You can sign up as a founder as an ally to support the women or as an investor, be that VC or angel or angel syndicate. Um, and we're actually working on a lot of exciting events, potentially programs. Um, so watch this space. <laughs> Definitely. And you also mentored at the Stealth Mode. Can you tell me how important was that mentorship experience? I really enjoyed it. I, I think I got really lucky as well because I got matched to one of the most amazing mentees there was um, who's doing an amazing work with her startup Teak Taka and she's supporting garment workers in Bangladesh and factory owners in Bangladesh so her work inspired me so much I was so so grateful to be matched with her and um, I don't know I think to be honest 
you call it mentoring, but actually it's really learning. Learning is a two-way street. I learned from her, she learned from me. I hope I could give her some wisdom, but I learned so much from her too. It, it was such a great experience. Thank you so much for highlighting those two programs and initiatives, Stealth Mode and uh, Founderland. I think definitely everyone should learn more about those opportunities. Absolutely. And my last question, which is, which is interesting because a lot of my guests are like, oh, this is very tricky. <laughs> <laughs> and Alina, can you tell me who you would nominate as your woman role model, as your woman author of achievements? It's, again, I'm going to probably echo what everyone else said. It's such a hard question. And I, like I said earlier, I think it's um, something that is different for every season. At different points in your life, you're being inspired by different women. And there's so many incredible women out there doing such fantastic stuff. But right now in this season of life, I think the woman who's inspiring me the most is Arlen Hamilton. I think she's an incredible person. She's achieved so much in her life. She is so resilient and her story is so inspirational. So I really recommend everyone to go and read her book because there were moments when I was reading her book that I just wanted to, you know, you, you know, when you're reading a book and you think I'll underline this because this is really helpful, but it felt like I needed to underline the entire book. <laughs> so. I have some of those books where like everything is highlighted and yeah. then I look at it and I'm like, this is just a highlighted book. Like this is terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly how I felt about her book. So I highly recommend everyone to check out Arlen Hamilton. Thank you so much for this recommendation. And Alina, thank you so much for coming to the studio and sharing so much knowledge, I think, so precisely and at the same time, very informative about textile waste management, your career path. And I think a lot of us can take many thoughts and learnings out of this uh, episode because not many, as you said, know about the textile waste and we should be yeah. more conscious about how we purchase, which garments we buy, how do we recycle those or upcycle those things. So thank you so much. And definitely I will be following your work very closely. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.